Hey everybody, it's Bowen here, and this is part of a series of conversations that lives with my writing, which you can find at Decide Nothing on Substack. Today I'm speaking with Galen Kirkpatrick. Galen is a professional paraglider pilot and coach in the 2022 FAI Women's Pan American Paragliding Champion, which means that she's a world-class practitioner of the exceptionally rarefied and extraordinary sport of sky racing. Racing paragliders is a lot like sailboat racing in that the object is to complete a given course in the shortest time possible, racing around marks or turn points as they're called, but in this case it's all in 3D up in the sky. In addition to her passion for flying, Galen is a skier, an improvisational comedian, and a very talented Tetris player, and I would add, humble, intelligent, courageous, passionate about her sport and about life, and very much a pioneer. I've been a paraglider pilot myself, which is how Galen and I met a few years ago, and we both know what it's like to practice something so incredible that most people don't even know exists, and also, whether they're right about it or not that most people consider ridiculously dangerous. Galen stopped in for an interview in between flying trips to Brazil and Colombia, both frequent destinations for pilots this time of year, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Galen is both the first fellow pilot and the first trans woman I've had on the show. She is someone who I've learned from and who shares the experience of how paragliding has been a teacher for me and for so many others. As you listen, you might scan the questions at the bottom of the show notes or just consider this one. How has your own relationship with gender and your own identity evolved over time? If you like what you hear today, please do visit decidenothing.substack.com. Click the little heart to like this episode and subscribe to get updated whenever I publish new writing or podcast episodes. Anyone who becomes a paid subscriber to my Substack will be eligible to receive a copy of my book, Freedom at All Costs, when it comes out for just the cost of shipping. Hi, Bon. Galen, welcome to Brothers and Teachers. That's the name of my podcast. The goal of this show is, first of all, to expose myself more to people that I want to learn from and people who are doing interesting things in the world and who embody positive presence, who embody their values and are out there in the world acting upon them. I see you as someone who's doing that, and that's a big part of the reason I invited you to be part of this. Bon, thanks for having me on. We have shared some experiences, and we've had some really interesting conversations in the past. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So like I said, I thought we'd start with flying. Of course, that's how we met. And um, I always have to kind of explain this to people. I say flying, and I usually say that first instead of saying paragliding, because a lot of people don't really know what paragliding is. And I just say flying and, you know. Then we get into, well, what do you mean by flying? And I think that we met at Applegate, right, in 2019? Yeah, it must have been. Yeah, which isn't even all that long ago. I mean, that was my first, not quite last competition, but, um, you know, I was a 
recreational pilot. Tell me a little bit about your flying career and where you were at then and where you are now. Yeah, you know, in 2018, gosh, I was sort of still in the beginning stages of my flying career. And I was working as an instructor Mm -hmm. and various other jobs, um, sort of tangential to paragliding. And then I was just starting to compete also. It was really an exciting time because I never committed so Mm. hard to something. It kind of arranged my life around it. And uh, yeah, it felt great. Mm-hmm. It was super thrilling. Yeah, paragliding is certainly something that, well, becomes for a lot of people, but also requires that kind of immersion, really, if you're going to progress to any sort of serious level. I mean, even without being competitive, you know, just to fly XC really seriously, you have to immerse yourself and certainly to compete. So, like, why do you fly and what has it done for you? How has it changed you? Well, um, I started flying at kind of a interesting point in my life. I was working a job, a, a, like a proper career that I never really expected to have, and I was financially stable, and I was super, super unhappy. And I had always wanted to fly. I've always been fascinated with airplanes and birds and looking up at the sky and dreaming. And finally, the stars kind of aligned. And I was so unhappy in my job and in my life that I was kind of like looking for windows to something better. And finally, I was just able to say, okay, I'm going to go paragliding on Sunday. And I did a lesson and it was, you know, really amazing. And so from then on, I just started being more and more curious and interested in flying. Yeah. And following that curiosity. Yeah, yeah. It it is such an amazing sport. And for me it has been so transformative really. I mean, I, you know, people ask me about it sometimes and you know, the activity that has changed me the most has had the biggest impact on me. And also certainly I would say that has been the most challenging overall in terms of the full body experience, the combination of the physicality, the skills, but of course the psychological experience, because it is such a boundary to go through, to step into the sky as a human being, something that we did not evolve to do. Definitely. So again, when did you start flying? Five years ago, something like that? Like six years ago. And now you are effectively a professional pilot. I mean, you're on the world level competition circuit, right? Yeah, that's correct. I would consider myself a professional pilot because I live and make money and recreate all in paragliding. Yeah. But I feel like that might give people the wrong idea because you don't really make very much money. But yeah. Uh, It's interesting, you know, I think it seems like an extreme sport to a lot of people. I oftentimes think of it as a discipline. Yes. It's very different than a lot of other forms of aviation because there's this problem solving that's required. Yeah. And it asks us to make what we want of the flight You know, I don't think there's a whole lot of personal expression in almost all of aviation, certainly not in professional 
commercial aviation, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit in general aviation. Mm -hmm. Acrobatic pilots seem to be able to express themselves creatively to some extent, mm. but it's not paragliding. It's not free flight. Free flight. I mean, that just says it so well, doesn't it? I mean, I hear the connection you're making in that we call paragliding and hang gliding free flight because it's unpowered, right? But also in this way that you're saying in that it's a form of creative expression because where you go and what you do is free and open. It's up to you. I mean, even in the course of a competition where you're racing around a course, you still have complete freedom about how to accomplish that. Totally. Yeah. And There's also something you mentioned the mental side of it and how flying or free flight as an activity or as a discipline has kind of challenged you more than almost anything else you've done. And I find it's really interesting, both for myself and watching um, students and people that have gotten into the sport more recently than I have. You know, it's not that complicated to fly a paraglider. In many capacities, it's easier than riding a bike. Yeah. Um, and even at moderate to high levels of performance in the sport, the technical ability isn't that much different in a group of pilots. Um, but the ability to put that all together and to perform the skill set or to perform the discipline, that's what puts pilots apart from each other. That's what separates us. I mean, part of my experience with flying was that it forced me to get my head screwed on more straight. Basically, to be able to perform the discipline, you have to get your shit together, right? Ideal, it just trains you to do that. I mean, whether you really want to or not, I mean, you have to want to fly. So, you know, if you don't end up wanting to get your shit together, so to speak, you'll wash out. I mean, you'll stop flying. Have you felt that progression in yourself, you know, some sort of psychological transformation? And do you see it in your students and other pilots? Yeah. I mean, one thing is I think there's a lot more pilots than people who will eventually ever get their shit together. <laughs> um, you know, I think that may be the goal for a lot of people, but I don't know that everyone will succeed at it or even most will succeed at it. I think it's very permissive since we exist in a kind of a gray space without a whole lot of rules. Yeah. And since you can sort of pursue it as a hobby, even if that might be risky, mm -hmm. um, for some of us, we recognize the magnitude of what we're doing and the risk, and we make it a point to pursue expertise because that's the only way we can feel safe doing it yeah yeah so we require ourselves to get our shit together yeah and that was it's been a huge theme in my experience with flying i don't think i was particularly disciplined as a young pilot mm -hmm. i thought wow this is a really cool thing but i didn't have a comprehensive view of what was really going on and so I was a risk to myself, mm. and I got lucky. I never got injured, but mm. I had some occurrences or instances where 
I had to look back and go, wow, I was really lucky there. And I totally didn't know how to deal with the situation. My mental performance was really lacking. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, it deeply affected me and made me really invested in getting to a point where I could feel safe with a comprehensive view of how to explore the sky. Awesome. I love that. I love that. One thing about paragliding, you know, you, you got to be a free spirit to take up free flight. And yet it does, as you just said so well, if you're going to pursue it over the long term, do it well, do it safely, you have to invest. You have to find a way to get disciplined about it somehow for yourself. And, you know, that brings me to this topic of discipline, which has been something that I've just been thinking and writing about a lot lately because I did not have a relationship with discipline myself as a young person. I thought of it as men telling me what to do, you know, like older men saying, well, if you have the discipline, then you'll know what's right. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, it, you know, it came from outside, but sports and certainly other things, writing now, uh, but things like paragliding helped me to unearth some sense of that. And so you brought the word in, discipline. You know, how has that developed in you? And what does discipline mean to you now? And what is your relationship with it? Well, that's a good question. I guess I kind of believe that anything is possible. And I kind of want to believe that we create our own reality now, that idea falls apart from some perspectives, and certainly it's a privileged idea to have, but based on my experiences of kind of needing to define myself and needing to block out a lot of what the world was telling me, or perhaps, as you're saying, these old men shaking their finger and saying, you have to do this. I feel that I have to make my own reality because I don't trust other people to make it for me. And I think there's really free ways to do that and really loose ways, um, being open to new experiences, being non-judgmental, being really curious about experiences besides your own. Um, and then I think there are ways that are much less free, which when you're trying to do great things or trying to do really, I want to say lofty, but we have to avoid um, <laughs> <Yeah>. flying puns. <laughs> um, when you're trying to do serious things with your life and in the world and with other people, it takes hard work. And so I think discipline as an intrinsic practice mm. to get what you want and what you want for the world is really important to me. So is freedom and being loving and free. But yeah, I work hard for the things that I want. And yeah. that's important to me. And I'm not doing it for someone else. Yeah, yeah, awesome. That's what I was starting to feel as you were speaking there. You know, you, you've dedicated yourself to a flying career at this point, And it sounds like at a certain point or maybe over some period of time, you kind of realize the seriousness of that commitment. Like if you're really going to do it, then there's probably some things that need to change or evolve or get stronger or progress. And 
that is a moment of reckoning, right? Where you either turn around or go through that and then do the hard things, do the things that maybe you don't want to do, do the training, get up in the morning, work out, you know, where else it is. You're not just showing up on the hill and you're not just going to fly wherever. I mean, you're competing. This is a whole other world. Just the fact of people racing around the sky requires discipline, applying yourself. Yeah, I think as a person, I really thrive in an environment where I can remove myself from it and perform a skill set. Yeah. I think there's a lot of improvisation that happens in good flying. Totally. And it requires a real presence. And those are things I really value. Mm. Improvisation and the ability to play. And then, you know, not to sound cliche, but being present is like really tricky, especially in the world now where things are constantly trying to grab your attention, even if it's just for three seconds. Yeah. Flying is a beautiful escape from all that it's like an escape and a training you know it's this combination of discipline and freedom i mean the two are intrinsically related and that's something that it took me many years to understand for myself is that they're not mutually exclusive at all you know there's like a foundation of steadiness and practice that really enables more freedom i mean that's how i've come to feel Yeah, I mean, I I think it starts maybe for a lot of people as an escape Mm -hmm. from the ground or an escape from their unhappy life. Yeah. Um, But everyone does something different with it. And so for me, and I think for a lot of pilots, the people I work with professionally and the people who I race with, it becomes not an escape, but sort of like a higher project, something that's to be worked on. So I definitely now sometimes need to escape flying. I need to just spend time on the ground and not pursue that performance of a skill set and of, you know, everything that I am. Yeah, I hear that too. Same here. I mean, you know, I'm not flying. Well, you're on a sabbatical. You're not flying. That's right. You could call it that. I found myself flying less and I wanted to focus on writing. And I was already doing that, but I found that flying can easily become so consuming, even just at a kind of high intermediate flying XE kind of level, you know, because you're always chasing those XE days and that it was a distraction, a beautiful distraction, but a very uh, noticeable, like energetic distraction. Well, how does the risk profile for you play into that because you do some other extreme sports you've been a guide before so you've chosen to put yourself in situations where you may have to save your life or you're at least operating in an environment which is rather unforgiving sure and so i wonder if you're taking a break from exploring those environments Mm. is that allowing you to produce a different creative product is Mm -hmm. that part of the distraction is knowing that you might have to do battle and (laughs) save your own life interesting interesting question i appreciate that of course risk comes up with extreme sports and certainly with flying because the consequences are higher you know whether the 
objective risk is higher or not. I'm not really sure. For me, it's not that I felt so much in danger paragliding. Uh, I did often come to face fear. Not every time I went flying, but was a recurring part of the experience. That can be an interesting thing to face if you get past the unpleasant part of it. Um, I mean, I'm constantly facing fear. Yeah, it's. I a, imagine, right, you must yeah. be, yes. I think a lot of people are. I mean, some people clearly aren't, but for me, it's a huge piece of yeah. putting it all together. But go on. Well, I mean, it, we can go back and forth on this. You asked about the relationship to the creative process, and what I found was that not so much the risk profile, but just the energy required to fly on a regular basis. Not just the time, but the energy beyond the flying days to prepare and then to go fly and fly long XC day. I would be both very excited, but also very drained afterwards. And I found that I would be in this headspace. I'd be thinking about flying and living kind of a flying life. And in that zone, I was not very creatively productive because I was occupied with this discipline. And so I think most of all, it was a choice for me of what I wanted to focus my energy on, first of all. That said, I mean, the experience of flying, of learning to fly and of doing it has forced me to grow in many ways and is also part of my creative life still. So to kind of close on that, I feel that I wanted to fly. I did fly a lot. I loved flying and I also don't need to. I don't even need to necessarily ever again. Um, I, I might at some point, but I don't need to. And it's part of just knowing that, well, I can't do everything. There's a limited number of things I can do in the world at any one time and over the course of my life. And if I want to write, and that's my number one thing, well, right now flying is just not in the cards for me. I want to jump in here after the fact and add something because Galen asked such an insightful question. The fact is that, as she was hinting at, taking my life off the line has allowed me to produce a different creative product. Flying is an extreme sport. And it not only requires a lot of energy to perform the skills, it takes me into, uh, let's say, a sort of vibration or state of being that is very intense, very consuming, and very extreme. At the risk of another flying pun, it's a lifestyle that involves a lot of ups and downs. And... I find myself able to be more creative when I'm living in a more stable fashion. I, I, I mean, perhaps in this case, it's not just a metaphor to say that I feel more creatively productive when I am more grounded, more down to earth. Another angle on it is that as someone who has been addictively attached to all sorts of things at different points in my life, I began to recognize some of the characteristics of addiction in my relationship with flying. I found myself wanting to do something that I also knew was 
taking me away from other things that were more important. And once that became inescapably clear to me, I had to give it a rest. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm interested in your relationship with fear. It's part of your experience still on a regular basis. So how does that come in? Let's say during a race, um, and when does fear come in for you? Well, you know, I've lived my life with a lot of fear, I think. Probably most of it in a rational sort of fear, so not a fear for my life or my mortality, but sort of fear of failure or fear of um, embarrassment or fear of disappointing myself or those who I love to be more specific. I live somewhat of an anxious life. And so flying on one hand, you get to leave a lot of that behind, but also you're operating by yourself in an unforgiving environment. I started out without very much fear. I don't think I had a whole lot of respect for myself. And I mentioned that I had some incidents and I realized, whoa, I don't have what it takes. Like I have repeatedly demonstrated that in moments where I need to become more focused, not. I in fact kind of check out or become less focused. My father one time when I was young mentioned to me an example from the mountaineering world, mm -hmm. which is that when you're on top of a mountain and you get scared, you sort of have a choice of what to do with it. You can either let it freeze you mm -hmm. or let it make you worse at protecting yourself, or you can choose to recognize what it is and then hold on tighter with more care each step you take or each choice you make in flying and so that choicefulness about what to do when we're presented with something that is a risk to us or is a fear is uh, thrilling and really interesting right it's an exercise yes. of self so i have an imagination i think this is something that a lot of good paraglider pilots have even if they don't admit it is an imagination. You know, we kind of have to imagine that something is possible, that we can cross a mountain range or that we can stay in the air even though we don't have a motor. And we have to imagine the shape of the air. We have to imagine something that we can't really see. Mm -hmm. We're looking for clues, but there's this big um, solve for X equation that's constantly going on. I found myself at the beginning of my flying career saying, wow, this is an amazing activity. I truly love it. It allows me to escape all these things that I'm trying to escape. And I can manage so much of the risk that I'm facing. So by seeking expertise and training really hard and immersing myself in the sport, I can manage all this risk, but I'm still performing in a unforgiving environment and I might die. Mm -hmm. The air shark might get me, you mm -hmm. know? And so I gamed the situation out. It's like, okay, well, I might die. Is this worth it? Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily encourage all my clients to do this and certainly not um, people just learning, 
But I think it's important, and I do try to normalize talk about it because mm -hmm. um, if you love going paragliding on the weekends, but you're not comfortable with the idea that it might kill you or break your legs, then you're kind of existing in a state of willful ignorance. Yes. And I mean... Yeah, that's not based in reality, yeah. So I think that's important. And over the course of the first few years of my flying, when I gamed that situation out and said, gosh, is this worth it? Is this worth, you know, potentially losing my life doing? Um, the answer was basically yes, but it came along with two things. One, I need to be able to manage and control as much risk as possible. So I want to have like a very low risk profile. Mm -hmm. And the second one is I want to have a life that's more worth living. So when I'm on the ground and in my life, I want to be happy. I don't want to be escaping something I'm not happy with in the sky, but I want to be living fully. And so that acted as a catalyst for a lot of change for me. Mm-hmm. On the first note, you know, some people were worried about me when they hear I was flying, you know, family members. And mm -hmm. I said, don't worry. I want to stay alive really, really badly. It's yeah. my life. Yeah. So just trust that I really want to survive and that I'm going to take all the possible steps in order to do that. Love that. Yeah. And, um, and that actually kind of worked for some people. They're like, oh, well, you know, that's a good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. No matter how much I worry about you surviving. I won't be as good as keeping you alive as you are. So, yeah, yeah, beautiful. Thanks for all that you've expressed. Some transformative power, not just flying, but of a lot of sports that take us to the edge of what we're comfortable with, what we're capable of, and face to face with fear. And then to this point of decision of, okay, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to turn away from it? Am I going to go through it? Am I going to consume it and digest it make it part of me um so thank you it's great to talk about flying i mean it's still a very fascinating world to me you you brought in the part of flying and going towards fear and how this has changed you that brings me to the whole topic of identity sure because we're talking about how these things change us as people i know that your identity has changed over the past several years in parallel with your career as a pilot. And so I, I want to invite you to speak about that. I'd love to talk about these two things together and how they've been interrelated for you. Yeah, I was kind of just talking about it. So it's a good segue. But one of the things that uh, I was struggling with in my life was gender dysphoria. That is the DSM-5 diagnosis that a lot of trans people receive before they start any sort of medical transition. It basically means a feeling of estrangement and or deep discomfort with the body that you were born in. Yeah. And so when I was flying and being like, this is worth everything potentially everything to me but looking at my life on the ground and realizing that I didn't feel like I had ever really lived 
Mm. um, or that I had ever really like showed myself to the world. Like no one knew who I was. Yeah. I mean, everyone's been in denial about something or other. And I think uh, most people don't really ever have to unwrap or figure out what that denial really is about. They can kind of move on. When you're in denial about something as integral to being a person as your identity, it presents in really funny ways. So I was like writing letters to family and loved ones, basically before I could admit to myself that I was trans or that I had gender dysphoria. I was writing letters and I was like starting to write them, but never finishing them mm -hmm. because I couldn't actually be specific within the letter. But I yeah. had this deep um, like longing and need to create a contingency like, hello, you don't know me. I am dead now, but um, this is me. Yeah. Like, I really wanted the people who I love and who loved me to know me. And so, but I couldn't write the letters. And yeah. so, like, this process for eight months of trying to, like, figure out how to express it was really interesting because I needed people to know me, but I didn't know exactly how to say that. I hear you. Yeah. And I was so wrapped up in avoiding um yeah. well, the finding, reality and finding the the words. I mean, first of all, finding the truth within yourself and then finding the words. I imagine that's a huge challenge, a matter of personal discovery and transformation. You know, I was having this conversation with another writer, a guy I just had on the podcast as well, Chris Ryan, about this whole idea of coming out and you just brought it up about being true to ourselves. That's what I hear you talking about yeah. is discovering that there was something that you needed to make known. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was comfortable flying and perhaps dying and I was, I'm comfortable continuing to live my life, but not um, dishonestly anymore. Yeah. So when was that moment for you? And how did you find the language? You know, it's tricky because it's so gradual. Mm -hmm. For example, I've known that I am trans since I was five or six. Mm. And for many years, I didn't have language. So I didn't really know what that meant. And then when I had language, I also had or I was taught prejudice around it. So all of a sudden, I had a clearer idea, but I also had a bunch of expectations and societal baggage around that idea. Mm -hmm. And so it's been this very slow 25 or 28-year process of unwrapping and figuring out and actually, like, taking responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I mean, I was, for example, like wearing dresses in private before I was capable of admitting to myself that I was trans. Like, I was seeking euphoric or gender euphoric experiences, mm. um, things that validated who I felt like I was before I could admit to myself who or what I was. I love that you just brought this in because I know, of course, gender dysphoria, but then gender euphoria. Yeah, I love it. That's that's beautiful. And so 
I also have the sense, I mean, you said, in fact, that as your flying career progressed, it helped you to feel, is it more more confident, more free to express yourself more directly and openly with the world? Um. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a bare minimum, I think, for most people. I think most people are just used to being themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think we need to go into this a whole ton, but there's this big piece of the flying community, which is primarily men. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, there's still a lot of sexism and kind of, like, in the community I started flying in, like locker room talk. And so mm-hmm. for me, not only was I having this big internal struggle, gosh, I need to figure out who I am and tell the world, but I was also deeply uncomfortable with the sorts of things I was being grouped in on and the language. Like I really, really didn't want to be part of this like toxically masculine culture of pilots and so yeah i was both running towards something and also just like i cannot be uh involved in this anymore because having the world see me as a boy or as a man is i mean it's traumatic um it sucks it sucks having to play that role for Mm -hmm. so long kind of like unwittingly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but also like Toxic masculinity really sucks. I was 27 at the time, being around other adults that were still acting like um, bullies acted in high school mm-hmm. was mind-boggling to me and really just was a clear indicator that I couldn't be part of this and that this wasn't okay. Mm-hmm. Um, gender euphoria, though. Hmm. Tell me. What does that what does that mean to you? And and do you think you have felt a piece of gender euphoria sometime, maybe recently, sometime when a healthy part of yourself and your gender identity was validated? Yeah, yeah, uh, great question. I mean, whether it's a personal feeling of like kind of radical gender dysphoria where you really don't want to be like a man or a woman entirely or in a more subtle way. I spoke about this with regard to discipline earlier in our conversation. Like I identified discipline early on as a aspect of kind of masculinity that I was not interested in. That's how it felt to me just as an example of a kind of dysphoric experience with gender. Right. There are many aspects of masculine, stereotypical masculinity that I don't identify with. Now, what that means for me as a man in my life now, I have come to feel that my own gender expression is just that, that being a man for me is being myself in my body and how. I choose to embody my own self, really, my identity, which also, because I'm a man, happens to be masculinity, is up to me, and it can be whatever I want it to be. 
Um, and so to the question of euphoria, gender euphoria for me, I mean, is like, do I feel joy at being myself in my own body? And the answer is yes. And it's like pretty much all the time. So I'm comfortable and like myself in my body. Um, and, and that is very much partly because though I have reckoned with some of the aspects of my own identity and masculinity that I, you know, did not want to be part of myself and had to come to recognize those and realize, okay, well, I don't have to be like that. I can be how I want to be. I don't have to be someone else's man. Sure. This behavior was taught to me or this was expected of me and I no longer want to exhibit this behavior. Yeah. It doesn't make me feel good. It's not an expression of who I am. Exactly. It's an expression of something I learned or some way that I was taught to be. Yeah, or just it's been transmitted unconsciously for generations and there's so much stuff that we absorb through the culture unconsciously that we all assume at some level that's kind of part of what it means to be a man or a woman. Well... All that's up for grabs now, right? That's part of what's so great about just where we are in the world at the moment. I mean, from my point of view that, well, you know, I can be whoever I want to be and so can everybody else. I think that the binary idea of man and woman and especially of the gender roles was kind of sold to... Um, Western culture and certainly America more than other places. But uh, it's very limiting. Yes. And I feel like we're seeing a lot of pushback from this idea right now. Like a lot of our culture in the U.S., people love gender. Mm. They love talking to men in one way and women in another. They love drawing a line and understanding that this is acceptable behavior for men and this is acceptable behavior for women. And while we live in California and that comes with a lot of privilege, for a lot of people, I think it's still, I mean, people love their gender binary. Mm. And so, yeah, I think there's like a lot of healing that's going on probably for general masculinity. And I think there's a lot of growth in the definition of what femininity is. It's just crazy to me, the expectation that one behavior is masculine and one behavior is feminine, because totally. no one really displays all of one behavior. We can perform all of one behavior, mm -hmm. but that's a learned thing. Well, I hear you. The way I think about these things is, I mean the way I think about a lot of things is like a little bit of a futurist's mindset. And you said that people love gender, you know, here in the States in particular, love talking about gender, love the gender binary, kind of putting people into categories. You know, men are supposed to be like this, or women are supposed to be like this. I'm going to talk differently to you if you're a man or if I think you're a man or, or a woman. At the same time, I kind of think of that a little bit like, gasoline in our cars you know we still use it but we have passed peak petroleum and we are well on our way 
to a world where we don't use petroleum at all. Now, it may take another generation or two, but we're certainly not going backwards along that path. In a similar way, I feel like we are well on our way to a place not where the binary of human biology goes away, because we are a species that physically mostly comes in two flavors. I mean, with variations, but that the expression of gender identity is just flourishing now and that we're going forwards into a period where whether someone calls themselves a man, a woman, or any number of other things and how they express that is not constricted by the historical binary. How do you feel about this? So I would push back on that a little. Um, I think it's really easy to say and or to see biology as a binary. But what are you talking about when you see biology as a binary? Mm. Are you talking about the sex hormone that our body creates? Are you talking about the genitalia? Are you talking about how our body responds to the hormones we create and our secondary sex characteristics? Are you talking about reproductive organs? Are you talking about chromosomes? Because mm -hmm. all of those things have immense variation among what we call men and women. And those are not particularly binary. Men come in all shapes and sizes. And there's men with really high estrogen production and really low testosterone production. There's men who develop breasts. There's women with super high testosterone production. I don't need to go into all the variations, but I think it's very easy for people to say, well, look at biology. It's this binary thing. You are a man or you're a woman. I mean, you kind of said that a couple minutes ago, but how would you define that? Would you say, okay, well, it's the chromosomes. Mm -hmm. The chromosomes are more important than the sex hormones, or is it the reproductive organs? And so once you get to that point, it's like, there's actually an immense variation in between what we would consider the two sexes. Just to clarify, I was not trying to say that, hey, there's a strict binary and that everything derives from that. Totally. That said, there are these basic male and female, like physical sexes, and I'll just state it as my opinion, and there's a lot of variation but there's a big difference between the shapes of our bodies and how we choose to express our identity. Yeah, it's two separate things. Yeah. Certainly. Uh, but for some people, for trans people, of which there are a lot, um, and for like intersex people or people with chromosomal, hormonal um, disorders, like the binary view is essentially erasure. I think we need to be applying the same open-minded perspective that you mentioned towards gender identity mm. towards um, biology, because we don't understand it. I mean, we kind of do, but 
it's a lot easier to say, oh, there's a man and there's a woman. And you don't actually know what that means. What does that mean? If a woman has a vagina but not ovaries, and if she has a chromosomal disorder, is she still a woman? I hear you. There are those cases. And also a point of reference of my own is like, when I'm walking down the street, you know, I'm not trying to figure out what's in somebody's pants. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of none of my business. Sure. Right? I appreciate that you brought in this question of erasure. And I kind of love the idea of just removing all these categories and starting over in a way. And if we didn't have these kind of eons of baggage, what would we call ourselves now? How would we want to be? I think that's a very positive development for culture, really. And yet there's still the vast majority of people are not trans and are, you know, men or women. The deconstruction and the evolution of sex and gender that we're all experiencing now in culture has huge implications for everybody. It means it's helping everybody, including non-trans people right, see those things in a much more open way and reconsider their own gender expression. It certainly has for me. I know it's true for many people. Yeah, yeah. Breaking down those expectations and accepting that a behavior doesn't really make you a man or a woman. It might be perceived that way by a lot of different people. But men talk about their feelings and women blow snot rockets. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a great way to put it. You know, I talk with both men and women about this a lot, about this stereotype that you just mentioned, that men don't talk about their feelings as much. And I say, you know what? That's fucking nonsense. First of all, that's just not true intrinsically. It might be true experientially, culturally, you know, and kind of on average over the last few hundred years or who knows, whatever. We developed that stereotypical perception for a reason, right? But it's not because we are men that we have gotten in the habit of not being as open with our feelings. It's because we were trained that way and we inherited that, right? And so I do not believe in perpetuating the false stereotype. I mean, again, nonsense. We're all humans. We're all perfectly capable of expressing ourselves if we have the practice and the freedom to do so. So, yeah, men talk about their feelings and women blow snot rockets. Absolutely. <laughs> I hope that's a good example. Maybe I could have thought about something better. Maybe that's unfair to no, just... many men and many women. I don't know. And at the same time, is this is helping a lot of people, mm -hmm. like you mentioned. A lot of people, they really are attached to their concept of gender. And sure. it's like really sad to see all the fear and especially mm. legislature acting to limit and to enforce. Yeah, I agree. Um these ideas and it's really bad 
super sad and it leads to a lot of violence against trans people. Even though we both live here in California, we live in different bubbles because I'm experiencing, even in a place where most people are supportive, what it's like to go through the world as a trans woman mm -hmm. and um, how different it is to go into a store, let's say, right down the street here and a store somewhere deep in the Central Valley. So I don't want to not talk about um, the issues that are facing trans people because there's a really good side and then there's this other really dark side. So I think cis people and in general, especially people who are enjoying and growing through our collective acceptance that very little is binary especially not gender and mm -hmm. in many ways biological sex i think especially the people that are benefiting from that need to figure out how to change the minds of other cis people and show people that you probably don't really want to be around that much because they're like hey men are this way and women are this way and look the balloon popped and the pink powder came out so we're having a girl Mm -hmm. um, you don't want to go hang out with those people, and neither do I, really. But I guess I just wonder what we can all do, um, but especially cis people, to change how other cis people relate to that um, categorization. Yeah, well, one's life is their own journey and struggle. You know, Kim Stanley Robinson, who I just interviewed Last week, he talks about how he learned from Gary Snyder to see masculinity as opposed to in the light of dominance, in the light of resistance, to move from dominance to resistance. And that is resistance of the dominant paradigm, right? Now, did that necessarily mean that he became an activist, you know, and dedicated his life to go and put himself in situations and try to other people sort of face-to-face -face about redefining their own masculinity, for example, or about being more open to other masculinities. No, he's a novelist. He's a writer. He dedicated his life to that. And he does bring those themes very much into his work. And so through his work and through embodying his own identity, he is doing what you just described. Just as an example, I feel the same way. You know, we all do our work in our own way. We all do it in our own way. Totally. And we're all always learning how to do it better. And we're being inspired by people. You know, it was only 12 years ago that gay marriage was legalized on the national level. And 12 years before that, it wasn't really that popular of a concept. Almost everyone knows someone who's gay and out, um, and not just here in California or on the West Coast. But well, that wasn't really the case in the 90s. It's very easy to other and to feel like things don't affect you. But if you have a gay family member or someone you grew up with or someone who you were close to who's like that, then you're much more likely to be compassionate. And so as that became the case, all of a sudden there's this 
collective public importance to, for example, just let gay people get married, which is the mm. such a bare minimum. I think what we're seeing right now, as it was happening with sexual orientation, it's now happening um, with identity. Yeah. And the people who are really against it are using the same arguments that they've been using um, and that they used against sexual identity. Right, which are obsolete arguments. I mean, that's that's how I think it's Obsolete, but simple and effective for their disciples or for their people. Mm-hmm. I think more people now, especially, I guess I would use men as an example, are comfortable with their attraction towards other men, you know, which may not be mm-hmm. sexual. Maybe it's just intimate and physical. Totally. Um, but they're comfortable with it now in a way which they may not have felt mm-hmm. at some other time. And so I think, um, you know, there's more people that are comfortable identifying as queer Mm. or as bisexual or as pansexual than there ever have been before. And I think that's come with exposure. And I imagine that something similar will and is happening with identity because not all trans people are the same at all. Everyone is different. Everyone has a different relationship with their body and the sex hormones that their body creates and how they feel about their secondary sex characteristics. Yeah, interesting. Well, thank you for that. Just thinking about, again, what we can all do in our lives. And I was thinking again about this theme of resistance and how that relates to coming out. The part of the way that we all resist past and move forwards is to well is it's like we all have a duty in a way to come out as ourselves as much as possible when we feel something come up in ourselves to take the opportunity to go towards the fear to speak the truth about who we feel ourselves to be in whatever sense that is so that more people see how different and diverse everybody is, right? That's something that applies to everybody. Yeah. Yeah, it's important. A piece that I've come to recognize myself more, you know, and also that makes me feel a commonality with this idea of coming out, you know, it's like we can all push that forwards. Yeah, I mean, earlier you said something like, I don't remember exactly what you said, but it was kind of along the lines of, well, I'm just a... Just a regular guy, yeah. Straight cis guy. Well, I said that sort of euphemistically. Yes, Yes, exactly. And and so I think that's really valuable thing to recognize. So like, ooh, look, I have not experienced marginalization. And not only that, but I have... Um, benefited from like a lot of privilege and and ways in which the world operates like that's an important thing i think for you and for all cis people and for all 
white people, really for all people that have experienced some level of privilege, which everyone has experienced some level of privilege. That's the thing. We, yeah, we all do in some way, yes. Um, so I, I think it's valuable to admit that to self and um, do a lot of introspection regarding that, to understand the privilege, and then to move from that space into imagining what it's like for people that aren't cis or who aren't white or aren't straight or who aren't you name it but also and this is to just kind of service the last thing you said when i hear people say that oh i'm just a cis guy i kind of want to say well no you're not you're unlike anyone else you may be like a lot more people but there are things that make you you that make no one else them right you know you are a special snowflake bowen and while it's really important that you you know check your privilege you also have to recognize that you are unique and that who you are because as you said the more we can all be um completely ourselves and the more we can all come out and escape what's expected of us right and escape like bicycling in between the lines or like being in the lane then mm. the more um we grow as like a community and as a culturally and socially yeah yeah totally absolutely yeah i mean i said that not to ascribe some sort of regularity to myself. Sure. Uh, but just to uh, make the point about how, like, most straight guys haven't had to come out as straight guys, right? right? And, you know, most straight women haven't had to come out as straight women because, well, it's kind of the default, you know? And to make the point that there's an opportunity there to figure out, like, what could I come out about? You know, what could I be more honest with the world about in terms of how I am. What have I maybe been assuming about myself in being a man, right? What opportunities are there to deconstruct that? Uh, we're getting close to landing the ship. And it's a question that I ask just about everybody, which is what's something that you have learned lately, like in the last year or so, let's say, that has changed the way that you live? That's a good question. You know, I think I've just done learning. <laughs> I think in the last year I've had realized enough. that I've had enough and that I don't need to keep learning, that I'm good. <laughs> awesome. I'm yeah. just going to stay the course. Just live, and, yeah, yeah. And just live. <laughs> no, you know, um, jokes aside, I think there's something to that. I spent so long, like, kind of in the dark, like unwittingly playing this masculine character, not doing it very well, being mistreated um, extensively. And then, and then as an adult, kind of like wondering, trying to figure out all these things about myself and about the world and really meeting people and like being super curious about them um, and like not really feeling at peace or like myself, whatever that means. And then in transition and for the first number of years, um, just 
figuring out so much, unpacking, being so busy, um, figuring out how to be like who I am and testing out so many things. I think in the last year, I've just kind of relaxed and like not done that. And it's just been really amazing. And I imagine that a lot of people kind of live like this, at least at some points in their life. And it's restful. I don't know that I'll do it forever, but but it's been really nice. Mm, that's great to hear. That's really great to hear. Like you said, jokes aside, I know that you're not done learning by any means, but to find yourself in a in a restful place, in a place where you're comfortable with yourself, um, comfortable with oneself, you know, I mean, I can say the same thing. Not that I'm done learning either, but just being in a place where I am comfortable with myself, where I'm not running around trying to escape something or redefine everything or change everything, you know, what a well, beautiful place to be for a while, you know? Sure. Well, it's, it's like, it's like having kind of a foundation to stand on. Yeah. Like, it's holding space for the self and the experiences and the things that like kept me alive and got me here. It's very easy to discount all that. And certainly like being an adult or being 26 or 27 years through life and then realizing that everything you sort of thought was true isn't exactly true. And you really don't know, like that's a huge hit to the ego and the sense of self mm. and um, it's very jarring. So just like recognizing that I am here, that I, you know, know things and that that's okay. It's okay not to know everything. And it's, I mean, it's really, it feels really good. Yeah. Great. Great. Yeah. I love, again, just hearing that, you know, just for you as a friend too. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. And, um, and also it seems that you are well, you're flying at a really high level. I'm not actually even familiar with the different circuits of competition in paragliding. Sure. Maybe just tell me, you know, like that'd be a good place to kind of circle back and finish, you know, just like where are you competing these days and what's your goal as a competitive pilot? Awesome. Well, yeah, this is fun, actually. I mean, you're familiar with finite and infinite games, Yes, totally. The idea that, that finite games are played to win and that infinite games, games are played to play as long as you can. To continue playing. Right. Yeah. I see paragliding in general as an infinite game. Totally. And paragliding racing, which uh, is the most thrilling activity that I've ever had the pleasure of engaging in, is a beautiful mix of teamwork and competitiveness it's kind of like orienteering in the sky you have to stay in the sky with a group of a hundred other pilots and you need to go tag all these turn points and so you use the other pilots you are stronger as a gaggle as a collective of many minds mm -hmm. but you're also trying to beat those people and right. so it's this like beautiful balance or tug of war in between trusting the self and mm. making your own decisions and trusting the gaggle and trusting you know 90 other minds 
yeah. um, who are trying to do the same thing as you are. I've had the privilege in the last year of racing at the highest level that there is. It's really interesting when there's a hundred pilots of comparable quality because then a hundred pilots are able to stay together versus when there's 30 pilots of comparable quality and 70 pilots who are flying slower and flying behind. Yeah. So yeah, it's a really beautiful game. I really, really love it. It's a really small community. So there's not very many people chasing it um, super hard. And there's very few women chasing it. And that's changing, which is really cool. It's definitely becoming more popular. A lot of new people are on the circuit. And there's a lot of women coming up who are really good. But yeah, it's just a magnificent game. And getting to play it at the highest level is essentially kind of like looking inside the minds of the best people. You have this amazing uh, ability or exposure to the best pilots. If you can see where they are and you're next to them and then 10 minutes later they're two kilometers in front of you because they were able to fly faster, pick a better line through the sky, do everything 2% more efficiently, well then you can look at that and you can learn from that and you can change your own performance to match that performance a little more. And it goes the other way too. Sometimes people choose something that's just wrong and you get to test out a hypothesis on the day Yeah. and it maybe works. And yeah. then maybe you win. Maybe you outsmarted the gaggle of 60 pilots i truly love it and um you know i started doing it just to become a better pilot to learn how to fly more efficiently but i've really fallen in love with the game and with the community and so i'm kind of trying to chase it as hard as i can i love it yeah i love it i love that you brought in the finite and the infinite game and how right there's a finite game within the infinite game uh, that's helping you to to progress and evolve. And uh, you've done a great job too of just describing the flying experience and the huge opportunity for emergent behavior and learning on the fly. Uh, oh, <laughs> get help out of here. <laughs> oh, no. Couldn't help it. Uh, such an amazing experience to be up in the sky with a whole bunch of other pilots. And yeah, you're all moving, as you said, as a group, but also independently. Well, each pilot is improvising. Yeah. Each pilot has their idea of how to perform the skills that they have. But then together, the gaggle performs a different improvisation. Totally. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because for as cool of a thing as it is, no one really pays attention and watches it. Even. Right. Even the idea of a finite game, usually a paragliding competition is a week long and will fly seven tasks. Mm -hmm. And um, even the idea of it as a finite game within an infinite game makes me chuckle because no one really remembers who won which day. And yeah. certainly if you go and get yourself banged up, um, then you've lost the infinite um, section of the game. So it even though it is somewhat finite and there is a quote-unquote winner, 
it still feels just like this sort of infinite process. And certainly a task win does not, you know, a career make. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I've definitely always gotten the sense of in the sport and in the community of paragliding that it's not about in it to win it. It's in it to live it. But no one watches it. It's Oh, yeah. You know, no one else it, knows. No one cares. It's very unrelatable. Yeah, it's invisible, yeah, to most people. And yeah. there's beauty in that. And and um, it yeah. comes with perhaps some downsides also. But there's kind of a beauty of that. We get to kind of operate in a bit of a vacuum. Yeah, it's a very rare thing, just literally. And also, yes, rare enough that it's invisible to most people. And yeah, one of the most free things I think that one can do, actually, if you think about all sorts of sports and activities, it's very, very free. It's very, very free. It's outdoors in wild places without a ton of rules and with a lot of improvisation and with a very, very strong community around it. It's a, yeah, fantastic sport. Fantastic. Um well, uh, just as we're wrapping up here, just want to ask, is there anything that, you know, it's coming to your mind that you just want to say as, before we finish? Hmm. I don't think so, Bon. I appreciate you having me on, and thank you for giving me a platform. I appreciate it. Well, thank you as well. Yeah, I really appreciate your willingness to come on and share your experience and yourself, and um, that's the goal. I really appreciate you. Thank you, Galen. Thank yeah. you. Um, and okay. Well, so lastly, how do people find you if they want to find you, follow your racing career and learn more about paragliding? Follow me on Instagram and don't hesitate to send me a message or even though it's unrelatable, it is a chess game in the sky and the live tracking is constantly getting better. You can watch races and you can watch little dots on the screen and see what elevation they are and watch this sort of flock of little arrows move around to different cylinders and mm -hmm. gosh if you foster a little imagination in yourself it's actually kind of fun and interesting to watch what the best place if someone wants to watch a race like live tracking online how does one do that you know it depends there's a couple platforms but airtribune.com is one way um, a lot of races use that live tracking on that site the flymaster uh, website has live tracking and a lot of races use that and then for the higher level races on the world cup circuit there's actually kind of a special piece of software which is particularly effective mm -hmm. and they'll do a um, little bit of commentary so you can get kind oh. of an idea of the personalities of the race and you can follow along yeah yeah right on and where are you off to next you're going down to uh, Colombia and brazil you're going to be competing down there too um, yeah, I'll go to Colombia. I'm actually only working in Colombia, so I'll do some guiding for three or four weeks, and then um, I'll head to Brazil, and I'll do two races there. So there'll be the British Winter Open, and then there'll be the first World Cup race of the 2023 season so cool. in Brazil. Yeah, I got to fly there a little bit a couple of years ago as well. Just an incredible place to be and, and to fly, so... Congratulations and enjoy that. Thank you so much, Bon. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, Galen, thanks again for being here, for taking the time and being willing to participate and look forward to seeing you out in the world the next time. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. 
Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you did enjoy this conversation, please do take a moment to visit the episode page on my Substack and click the little heart icon to show everyone else that you liked it. It's a very small thing to ask, and it really helps other people find my content here on Substack. I appreciate you making that small gesture of appreciation. You'll also find the questions there that I posted at the bottom of the show notes, which you can read and consider commenting with your own thoughts on what we discussed in the episode. I'd love to hear from you. You can subscribe, recommend, share, and comment all right at the bottom of the page at decidenothing.substack.com, where all of my writing and audio lives, or in your favorite podcast app. Just a reminder that anyone who becomes a paid subscriber to my Substack will be eligible to receive a copy of my book when it comes out for just the cost of shipping. And, of course, you can always reach me by email or find me on social media. Thanks again for being here, and I hope you tune in again soon.